Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux. Hope you're doing well. We're here with Janice Atkinson. She is an independent MEP representing the southeast of England and is vice president of the Europe of Nations and Freedoms ENF group in the European Parliament. You can find her website at janiceatkinson.co.uk and twitter.com forward slash Janice for Brexit. That's very subtle. You, you won't know where you stand in that. Thanks so much, Janice, for taking the time today. Well, you're very welcome, Stefan. I've been a big fan of yours. And um, I hope I, I can live up to those other bricks that you've had on. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Thank you very much, by the way. So the EU, my goodness, it seems almost like, you know, when you, you push in one side of a balloon, another side comes out, it almost seems like there was this USSR that was a giant disaster. And then when it began to crumble apart and the seams began to show and things began to fall into disarray uh, on the Soviet side, a bunch of bright sparks in Europe said, hey, I bet you we can do it nicely here with the EU. And uh, this kind of collectivism surmounting of nationalism and so on is an experiment that I think is gone woefully awry. And where do you stand with that uh, perspective? In 2014, there were 750-odd MEPs elected from across the EU to sit in the parliament. And those people that are there, you've got this cabal um, that sits with Merkel, which is the so-called conservatives, and you've got the socialists. They're the the biggest group, and they do dirty deals together. When I got there, I I, I knew what the EU was about. I'd been over there, I'd sat with uh, British conservatives, and I was quite disgusted about what I saw. But nothing actually prepares you for when you sit in the chambers and the committees and you listen to them. Um, Our voices are not heard. They've got elections in May 2019. Britain won't be there. But what you've seen is this surge of opposition from all over Europe, from France to Netherlands to Germany to um, Sweden, all across Europe. There's new political parties that are springing up. There's Neodexia in Greece, left the Conservative Party. There's a new party called Vox, left the Conservative Party in Spain. And so so it goes on. You've seen the rise of the alternative for Deutschland in in Germany and also the Blue Party, where Frau Capetri, who did leave, AFD has gone. Those people have got massive support. Now, the current makeup of the uh, parliament doesn't reflect that. And I think in in May 19, you're going to see an enormous Eurosceptic elected representatives coming back. You'd also see um, a surge of the hard left that sits opposite me. We've got communists, you've got the IRA sitting there, um, disguised as Sinn Féin, disguised as as the alt-green hard left. So it's going to be a very, very difficult political makeup. And what you've seen over the past few months is my side, I sit in the European of Nations and Freedom Group, which consists of Marine Le Pen, Gilt Wilders, um, H.G. Stracker, Matteo Salvini. Now, those people are either the official opposition in their countries or they're actually taking power. So you're seeing a vast difference. And what you're seeing at the moment, and especially over Brexit with Monsieur Barnier, who is the head negotiator um, for the commission, and Kiefer Hofstadt, who's public enemy number one in the European Parliament, my nemesis, is the fight for their existence because the people are rejecting their policies. And they're not going to go down fighting. That's why you see... Um, Brexit doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. The government is all over the place with it. So you're seeing a very, very different shift. And the people are behind either Nexit for um, the Netherlands or there's a lot of people in France that want Frexit for, for France. So you're suddenly seeing this gradual change. We took that brick out of the wall and it's gradually crumbling, I'm glad to say. Right. Now, my perception of Brexit, Janice, was something like this, that people wanted to control their own borders. They wanted to return to the nation state, at least to some degree, and they wanted control over immigration. As I think you've pointed out, the vast majority of housing is now going to economic migrants, not really refugees and so on. And you have people from the UK armed forces who are sleeping in the street because they can't find a place to live. And that, to me, was the major driver. It's not like people care about the abstract principles of free trade. I mean, people like you and I do, and (laughs) our friends do, and so on. But the average person was just like, well, my country is kind of shifting underfoot. There's a lot of problems, high taxes, uh, massive overspending, housing crises, educational crises, healthcare crises, because all of these systems were not designed to deal with this massive influx of adults. You know, normally, if you have a bunch of kids, you've got, you know, decades, in a sense, to plan for some of these things, but you don't when people just come surging in. 
But the perception from the leadership seems to be very different from the urgency, I think, that was felt by the people who voted for Brexit. And that divide, I think, is very dangerous for the country's political legitimacy. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, you know, Britain's been a very welcome and opening of uh, open country. Uh, we've had the uh, the British Empire, now the Commonwealth, and we've welcomed people um, in small groups. But what we have is this vast arrival of nearly two million people that we just couldn't cope with. So the schools are uh, underfunded and the schools are overpopulated and then you've got housing um it's having an economic uh, impact as well so you're having to build these extra houses then you've got the NIMBY saying you can't build on the green belt because that is sacrosanct and to a degree that's absolutely right but we wouldn't have to be having this argument about building on the green belt um and uh, and funding the extra funding into the nhs some taxes going up if we didn't suddenly have to absorb all of these people. And there's no sign of that stopping. And the people of Britain really cottoned on that 80% of the migrants sitting over in Calais in France are economic migrants. There's very few asylum seekers. There's very few refugees. And you see the narrative in the EU change. Um, they are now refugees. They're not economic migrants. They won't use that word. Um, and also the UN has got a body that's pushing this, that you know, you've got to redistribute all, all, all these so-called refugees and asylum seekers. And that's been really sad for the refugees and asylum seekers, because yes, absolutely, we should be welcoming. So should, so should your country, the US and others. But now people have got very, very hard because they can't get their kids into the schools, the preferred schools that they want. They can't afford to get their kids on the housing ladder. Uh, property prices have gone exponentially high because of immigration. Everything comes down to immigration in the end. And we, we actually can't cope with that. And the rest of Europe are seeing this as well. But it isn't just the um, housing, the infrastructure, it's the social um, infrastructure as well. Uh, we are having to adapt our culture and our identity to fit in with a small minority of people that are very vocal, very well funded as well by the left and Antifa, and our voices are being shut down. And the ordinary person in the streets since sort of 2014 has really said enough is enough, whether it's in this country or whether it's in France, Germany or wherever. Uh, we've seen these 80% of fit young men. And I've been over to Calais a number of times. I've been to the Greek migrant camps a number of times as well. These fit young men have a very different attitude and perception on Western values, our freedom of speech, our way of life. And we have to adapt to them. And we're saying, no, enough is enough. And especially women that have been attacked and raped and sexually assaulted, we're saying, no, enough is enough. And that's trickled down to the rest of the population. Most of the population don't think about free trade agreements. All they want to do is put food on their table, feed their kids, go to Waitrose or Tesco's, whatever supermarket they go to. Um, they're not really worried about free trade agreements. They don't understand that, you know, that, that that's for us and the policy wants to get that. Um, but that's important as well. Well, and it is a very strange, just one minor correction, my country's Canada, not the US, but it is a very strange situation when you look at the macro aspect of things, Janice, which is, so there was, you know, massive uh, transfer of wealth from the first world to the third world with the hopes, of course, of building up stability in the third world. And generally what happened, particularly in Africa, was the population just exploded, mm -hmm. which was the result of, you know, foreign aid payments and other forms of, of economic transfers. And then... The, the powers that be decided to play grandmaster chess destructo game with the Middle East, destroying countries like, like Iraq and, and I guess attempting to Syria and Libya and so on. And so you send huge amounts of money to swell a population. You bring down the barriers and then you raise the amount of money that you pay for people to come into your country because it's very expensive having these uh, immigrants come in. This is a sort of perfect storm or, you know, some might say an engineered, uh, disaster that seems to have one particular direction. One of the things that that I think a lot of people are asking is, if there is all this instability in the Middle East, if these people are refugees, well, there are many, many countries in the Middle East that have compatible climates, political systems, religions, cultures, and so on. Why on earth would they trek across the Red Mediterranean all the way through Europe to a tiny island on the edge of Europe? It doesn't seem to make much rational sense, which is, seems to be politics these days as a whole. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, my country has committed to spend 0.7% of GDP on foreign aid. That's at current prices, that's £14 billion a year. Now, that foreign aid is going to places like China, India. They've got their own space programs. Yeah, these are, are, are phenomenal um, countries with phenomenal wealth. Um, so absolute madness. 
and we're funding Africa. Rather than funding Africa and giving them aid, we should actually be trading with, with Africa. So the EU doesn't allow us to do this. The EU actually keeps Africa in poverty. So if we are allowed to trade with them, then we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't have these people. You know, the, uh, the latest UN and US survey thinks there's 10 million people poised to come out of Africa and slightly through the Middle East as well. And I say to the people in the Middle East, the Afghanis that are here uh, or, or trying to break into my country that are a hold up in Turkey at the moment and Greece and the ones that are sitting on the borders ready to, to raid my country from, from uh, Calais. If you want to, why, why do you want to come and impose your Islamic values on my country? Surely there's better countries for you to go to, like Saudi Arabia, for instance. Maybe you don't want to go there. Or you can go to the Middle East. And it's us that's asked to pay up the money the whole of the time, where the Middle East pay very, very little um, at all. The UAE, the, Uni uh, the United Arab Emirates, only taking those that actually can contribute to their society. And they are building the infrastructure there and then they go home. But the immigrants that they've got there are mainly um, from Pakistan. A lot of them come from India who are also uh, Muslims. They're working, they're building on the infrastructure. When they're finished, they go home. So I have no problem with, with immigration, but we have to have the brightest and best around the world to work on the projects that we need. We need the scientists, we need um, we need people with math mathematical degrees. We need computer scientists. So we bring in the people that we need, not, not third world migrants that work for a minimum wage or work underneath the economy. And as for the 14, pound, 14 billion pounds worth of foreign aid a year, that came about because David Cameron wanted actually de to detoxify the so-called Conservative Party. And he, he signed up to that. And again, he tried to get some of the EU countries to sign up, but it just doesn't stop at 14 billion pounds that is going to these desperate spot regimes. We give money to North Korea, we give people uh, to rogue states like Iran. Um, but on top of that, we actually contribute into the EU funds as well. We have no say how that money spent. And it goes into providing poverty for Africa and contributing to schools in Pakistan that don't actually exist. So building non-existent schools, putting computers into non-existent schools and educating non-existent students as well. And that's got to stop. Well, this is the great tragedy of foreign aid as opposed to trade, because foreign aid benefits uh, each individual in, on both sides of the equation. Sorry, uh, trade benefits both individuals on each side of the equation, but foreign aid is basically taking money from poor people in rich countries and giving it to rich, powerfully, politically connected people in, in poor countries, and it is a huge Mess and and the suspension. It seems to me, particularly with the refugee crisis, Janice, of the rule of law is quite important because if you're a refugee, the moment your foot touches soil, you're not supposed to go anywhere else but that country. It's not supposed to be oh, who gives out the most welfare and let me make it. So unless somebody's somehow able to go from Africa and sail all the way around uh, to to the UK, uh, there should be no refugees arriving in the UK from the Middle East. And so this suspension of the laws that were promised for enforcement uh, is one of the most chilling aspects, I think, that uh, the vast majority of these uh, migrants uh, are, of course, not refugees, and that should be adjudicated. But even if they are, they tend to be welfare shoppers looking for the best deal they can possibly get or looking to reunite with a community or family members or a tribe or something. And so the EU's rules themselves have been suspended in the distribution of these uh, scant refugees even as they stand. Oh, yeah, they've absolutely been um, abandoned. And at the moment, it's called Dublin 2. So a refugee or an asylum seeker has to claim asylum or, or refugee status in the first country that they arrive in. But that's been abandoned because... Greece have moaned and Italy have moaned, well, we can't cope with this. So we, we did a dirty deal with Turkey. We basically paid them six billion quid um, to shut the borders and house people. And there was no receipt for that. When I asked the uh, president of the European Parliament, then Martin Schultz, I said, well, have they explained to you how they're going to keep these people? How many people are going to be in the refugee centres? How are we going to process them, etc.? Are we going to provide them with the help to do this? And basically, he came back and said to me, well, no, that there's, that there's no system for monitoring what they do. We're just giving them six billion quid and we hope that they can contain them, basically corral them. But Turkey have said enough's enough. So the, 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 the refugees and the migrants are now just streaming back into Europe. Now, if we had implemented uh, Dublin too, and we we manned our borders, as people like um, Victor Orban, who I think is, is, is fantastic in Hungary, who has placed troops on his borders and actually put his own borders up. And we, and we 
my group and the EFDD group, which is Nigel Farage's group, we call for an abandon of Schengen, which is the system which is a free movement of people around the EU. We're not in Schengen, so we don't have the free movement of, of, um, of everybody going uh, around Europe. You still have to come into um, our country and show a passport. But what you're seeing is a seeping in through the Balkans, a seeping in through Italy and Greece, who just absolutely can't cope. And what we're seeing is gun running, prostitution, trafficking, people trafficking. Um, it's not just about economic migrants. They're all trying to make a buck as well. So, you know, the destabilization of Egypt and Libya with the Arab Spring, where Sarkozy and Cameron thought that, oh, wouldn't it be nice to, to democratize and get rid of people like Gaddafi and Mubarak? Uh, we've now seen an oppressive regime in Libya. Nobody knows who's running it. It's a totally rogue state. And, and they're all coming out of Africa via Libya. And we, we can't stop it. Those boats are coming out day after day after day. So what we need to do is man our borders, close our borders, shut the Schengen system down and go back to the rule of law, which was the original rule of law, rather than just saying, oh, dear, it's completely unworkable. Um, we need to have another system. Rubbish. And then the EU says we're going to impose the numbers of migrants on you. Well, there's another crisis coming because Hungary, the Visegrad countries, Poland, etc., said, no, we're not taking any more migrants. And the people now... Um, that are voting for, for parties like the Lega Nord, Matteo Salvini, a friend of mine, he's a vice president of uh, the Europe of Nations and Freedom as well. Uh, they're saying no more migrants. We're not having it. We're not accepting them. So there's another crisis coming along where the EU is actually taking on uh, Poland and Hungary at the moment. They're going to have to take on Italy soon and Sweden will have another will have a general election at the end of the year in September and they'll have to take them on as well because my friends, the Swedish Democrats, will then be in power. So, so, so it goes on. So, you know, you, you have these crises. Oh, well, we'll just abandon um, our borders. We'll just abandon the rules of Schengen. And this is the result that we have. Well, and what's really been horrifying to me, Janice, is looking not just at the collapse of the rule of law in many ways, uh, among European countries, particularly those who've taken a lot of the migrants. Uh, you have uh, people getting off with probation for rape. You have uh, uh, massive, you've got female genital mutilation uh, problems in the UK, been illegal since 1985, not one single prosecution in any way, shape or form. And then, of course, you have the Rotherham, uh, Rotherham scandals and other scandals wherein you have the Pakistani migrants or Im immigrants, sorry, who are uh, torturing and raping young white British girls. No rule of law there uh, until uh, a real extremity occurs. So you have this kind of abandonment of the rule of law in one area and a real concentration of the power of the state on free speech. Uh, I was reading, uh, as I'm sure you have uh, as well, the Sentencing Council for England and Wales drafted changes to public order offences so that if anyone is perceived to be targeting online a protected characteristic, including, this is the quote, race, sex, disability, age, sexual orientation, religion or belief, pregnancy and maternity and gender reassignment and punishments uh, can include uh, up to multi-year jail sentences. Uh, that is astonishing. There's no proof for this. It's not objective. It's somebody's subjective experience of being offended. Uh, and as we've seen with some people, no, a complaint doesn't even have to be made. The police can just take it on themselves and pursue as they see fit. To call this a chilling effect uh, is like calling the ice age a cold snap. And uh, that is one of the gravest things I think that seems to be coming out. The whole idea of diversity was, hey, let's have a big and more rich and more diverse marketplace of ideas. And what is delivered and what is promised is completely oppositional. Yeah, absolutely. The grooming gang scandal is just a tragedy. 84% of the uh, grooming gang's members are Pakistani men or of Pakistani origin. So we've imported this culture that has total disregard for um, our way of living, our culture, and Western women, actually. You've got tens of thousands of girls that have been abused, and some boys, actually, as well. And, we, and to date, we've only had 156 prosecutions which is which, which is quite a horrific um, uh, figure down in London you've got Sadiq Kant as I call him our mayor that uh, has now got a task force so he's employing five particular police officers and he's been given along with the home office around about 2.2 around about two and a half million to target online hate and speech so but what is 
hate speech. Well, we have to go back to 1997 when the Blair government came in. Um, both him and his wife are lawyers, they're human rights lawyers as well. So they brought in hate speech and hate crime. But no, it's never really been defined. You know, it, you can you can refer yourself to a website called Telma, which is basically a sort of Muslim-run um campaign against Islamophobia, but what's Islamophobia? So you can actually ring up and say, I've been terribly hurt by somebody uh, online that said something about me. There's no verification on that, but that goes down as a statistic. And so those statistics are going up and up and up. So we've, in, the, in the past few years, we've lost 20,000 police officers in London, but yet Sadiq Khan can find £2.2 million to have five officers and others sitting there watching what we're doing online. In the meanwhile, we've got, we are the acid capital of the world, the acid attack capital of the world. We've had 63 murders this year. That's an increase of 44%. But you can find time to target people that because somebody feels hurt because you just said, oh, well, you know, transgender doesn't really exist. And even if you cut your balls off and you take some hormones, you know, you, you, you can't be a woman. So if I go online and say that, which I do quite often, uh, there are only two sexes. That's considered a hate crime. I mean, I haven't actually been targeted yet, but you know, I'm just waiting for the time. I don't think they're targeting necessarily um, elected representatives, but lots of my friends are being kicked off online. Um, Shazia Hobbs, who is a Muslim, a, a former Muslim victim of child abuse, sexual abuse, she's not allowed to go online anymore. But so the, the money is targeted against those who are perceived of targeting Islamophobia. But there's no money on the other side for ex-Muslims, and there's no helpline for these girls that have been groomed. There's no hotline for them to call to say confidentially that we've been abused, um, and that's a great tragedy. So you've you, you've had. You've got billions of pounds being channeled into those who feel oppressed from people that only make up roughly 5% of the population, where we've got tens of thousands of poor working class white girls who have been targeted systematically, raped and abused. Um, and that's got to stop. That's where we are with it. Oh, it is. Um Really a, a crazy situation because, of course, uh, England was in many ways the originator of the very idea of free speech. And it's always been my particular argument, Janice, that if you have a good case to make, you should never be afraid of opposition. If your position is solid and rational and moral and defensible and supported by empirical evidence and all kinds of good philosophical bows and and, and uh, wrappings on it, well, it is, seems to me that only people with the very worst possible ideas would be afraid of critical examination of skeptics. And it was almost like the free speech laws are designed to defend the indefensible, because if it can be defended, you shouldn't need protection from the law. No, I agree. And it worries me where it's going. Freedom of speech is it's a democratic right and it's a democratic society. But it's us that's being closed down. It is the sort of conservative right to free speech. Um, it's been shut down in the European Parliament. Uh, we're now, if, we, if it's decided by the chairman that's presiding over proceedings, I called um, Catherine Beard, the last remaining Liberal Democrat MEP, quite mad for some of her proposals. I wasn't allowed to say that. I cut off my microphone. I called Guy Verhofstadt odious. Well, the man is odious. And again, I got a nasty letter um, from the president. You know, you cannot use this sort of language in there. But if you can't have freedom of expression and, and freedom online, yes, Twitter does get a bit manic at times. And so does Facebook. But people are saying what they actually are, are, are frightened of and in fear of. And if you shut down the free speech, then that's where extremism does come in. They're driven to far right or far left ideology um, and everything in the middle and to the right is shut down. And fear, people feel very, very upset and angry over that. And I, and I fear with this sort of social democrat government that we have in power, um, it worries me because I, I, David Davis is the uh, Brexit secretary. And he resigned a few years ago from, from um, the, the Cameron opposition and, and fought a by-election against 42 days detention. And um, I went up to his constituency and I ran the campaign up there. Um, I can't hear him 
now speaking out for free speech. And that's basically what he was saying is about sort of civil liberties, liberty, rule of law, etc. There's just this silence across the conservative bench. Um, and the police are being used as pawns in this as well. We're wasting resources. I think there's about 800 officers now dedicated across the country looking online, um, armchair coppers, and arresting and shutting down. And you've got Antifa, the far left, targeting certain people and, and another group called Hope Not Hate, um, targeting certain people online, like Shazia Hobbs, who was kicked off Twitter, Toby Robinson, who's got... You know, hundreds of thousands of followers kicked off Twitter. I might not agree with everything they say, but I absolutely uphold their right to say it. Well, of course, nobody can arbitrate the marketplace of ideas. That is a form of oligarchical tyranny that has failed repeatedly throughout history. And we lose the feedback that we need to guide ourselves sensibly as a culture. And the other thing, too, I think it's fairly fairly important to, to point out that nobody with half a brain thinks that all of these hate speech laws are going to be applied evenly across religions and across races. In other words, I see the most egregious hostility towards white people online, rarely policed. I see hostility towards contempt towards Christianity, which is uh, almost never uh, policed as, as hate speech. So it seems to be some kind of objective law, but the way that it's actually implemented in practice tends to be more uh, protecting uh, those uh, who criticize uh, whites and Christians, and it is not an evenly applied standard at all from what I've seen. No, I, I absolutely agree. When gay marriage was brought in, um, I went on the BBC's Question Time program, actually with a, with, a, with a gay guy as well. And I was up there to say, the BBC expected me to say, well, I don't believe in gay marriage because uh, I have a strong, strong Christian background or I'm just opposed to gays getting married. But what they don't realise is that I have no faith actually. So I'm not interested. But what I was worried about with gay marriage was bringing in the hate crime laws as well. So when um, a vicar or, a, or anybody stands up on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday, depending on their faith, whatever faith you're from, and, you, and they stand up and say, no, I think that gay marriage is wrong because they've got 2000 years of doctrine behind them. I would absolutely stand up for them to say gay marriage is wrong. Um, I don't care to gay people want to get married. I have no um, interest in that whatsoever, uh, of shutting that down. But if certain Christian sects say, actually, no, we don't actually believe in um, gay marriage because of 2,000 years of doctrine. Um, and if the, the, the rabbi stands up on, on, on a Saturday as well and says the same thing, um, but they can be arrested. So if you have a priest that stands up in the Catholic Church or, or the Anglican Church and says that's wrong, there, there's every chance that they could be arrested. But I'll tell you who they won't be arresting? The imam. When he is saying, yes, we could just throw gays off the top of the, the building. We should stone them to death. This is sodomy. It's Gomorrah. We should not be allowing this. Um, and, and stone them to death? They will not be arrested. But if anybody else stands up and says that sort of thing, then we're going to be arrested. So it's very, very skewed towards a, a very small minority inhabiting our countries. Well, the UK police have confirmed that dislike and unfriendliness can be hate crimes. I mean, let's just call them what they are, which is politically incorrect thought crimes. I mean, that's basically, we're in an Orwellian situation here. So dislike and unfriendliness can be hate crimes. And I wonder if a Muslim refuses to shake a woman's hand, whether he or she will be prosecuted, because um, that's definitely unfriendly, wouldn't you say? I've had it. I've had Muslims that have uh, refused to shake my hand. And I've just turned my back and walked around. I said, sir, I don't need your vote. And I have, I've decided to walk away. And the ones that did it actually were brought, born and brought up in this country. So that's a very worrying trend. But if I dislike something, then I dislike it. You know, that's subjective to me. You can't put an objectivity um, rationale behind that because it doesn't like. You know, if I, if I, I was told to tell today, I won't say um, who was in the room, but her daughter had gone to school and she said, I don't like cats, actually. And all the other little girls in that room said, no, you can't say that. What do you mean? That, that's really nasty to say that. And people will be offended. And the little girl said, why would you be offended if I don't like cats? And the teacher joined in the conversation as well, saying, um, I think you've taken it a bit far. But what you have is this indoctrination now in our schools and in our public life. And if the parents are not... Um, Having discussion at home, around the table, we always have political discussions in, in my house and my sons can go, hold their own anywhere. But if you're not having those political discussions about what is right and what is wrong, or just 
political discussions about life and, and what you feel about things around the dinner table at home, then I'm afraid that you're leaving it open for the schools to indoctrinate it. So it's state indoctrination when you've got little six and seven year olds saying that it's basically hate crime to say that you don't like cats. That's that, that's how far it's gone now. I know it sounds ridiculous. But that's no, no. But, but the good news is the cat doesn't have to lodge a complaint because the police can do it on behalf of the cat and, yeah. and take you, throw you into kitty prison or something. So, I mean, I, I grew up in, in London, England. And to me, the topics that I see coming out of England at the moment are genuinely and foundationally incomprehensible to my youthful experience. So we talked a little bit about female genital mutilation. Uh, one case discovered or treated in the U in England every single hour of every single day of every single week, month and year. And the government has recently logged 1200 cases of forced marriage, forced marriage. Now that's just the logging of them. Full scale of it is not known. So to me, the issue of dealing with things like uh, dislike and unfriendliness being hate crimes, people facing more than half a decade in prison for online activities that are not direct incitements to violence in any way, shape or form, forced marriage, female genital mutilation, the mass rape of white working class girls that has been going on for decades and, and only was grudgingly ever prosecuted after social media brought it to light. These things are like peering either through a tunnel of time or into a country that I don't fundamentally recognized from my youth. Yeah, but I don't fundamentally recognize it either. I grew up half of my life in London. I spent the other half of my life in Kent. So just recently we come back, back to London. It's not a country that I recognize. It's not a country that the majority of the people recognize. Not one single prosecution for female genital mutilation. We've imported that. Um, the acid attacks in London. Again, that's an importation. That's that's not something that we've created here. It's importing alien cultures. Um, and, 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 and so it goes on. But we now have a mayor in charge of London that is more obsessed with an obesity campaign. So that's his latest wheeze today. He's shutting down um, ads for burgers. You know, when's the last time you see a cheeseburger? Stab anybody. But then he goes on to ban women in bikinis um, and women that, that there's a... Um, uh, there was a diet pill that was organised. Fantastic body, bikini, are you beach ready? And any normal woman going past that thinking, no, I'm not actually, I won't take your pills, but I'm going to go down the gym. I'm going to not eat that burger, you know, because it's got two months. He then shut those ads down. So he's hard on obesity. He's hard on ads like that. He's hard on hate crime. But in the meantime, we've got the acid attacks. You know, we've got the highest number of, of murders now uh, ever that we've had in our country. Um, but yet, the certain populations are just allowed to live their own life and abuse our hospitality, our Western women. Female genital mutilation has been brought in from North Africa. It's a heinous um, a crime. But we still, <laughs> and at the same time, we have the gender wars. You know, we have the transgender wars, um, diversity, and that sort of thing. Do you think that these people that are committing these crimes as sexual grooming and, um, and, and a female genital mutilation, they're laughing in our faces all the time that our, we're distracted in arguing about transgender rights and LGBT rights, etc. Then all this is going on. You're just distracting resources, and just people get more and more angry. And we're not dealing with the real things that we should be dealing with. And we're not targeting our police resources where it should be targeted. Um, but recently, um, talking about free speech, um, I intercepted Lauren Southern, a Canadian citizen. Um, she was prevented from coming into the UK along with um, colleagues of hers, Laura Pettibone, a US citizen, and also Martin Selma. Now. They hadn't even made a speech in the UK, but they were prevented um, to coming into our country. But I can't. We have. We're not preventing um, the jihadis from coming here, coming back. But there's 1,000 jihadi brides that the EU has um, highlighted that are looking to come back. They've had 5,000 children while they're out in Syria and, and uh, Iraq. But there's no talk about banning them from coming back in. We've got 500 jihadis that have slipped in back through the country. There's no talk about trying to find them. It's targeting free speech. It's not targeting FGM. It's not targeting the jihadis. We're not shutting down the schools that are, are, are teaching the hate of jihadi crime, hating our Western way, hating our women, hating um, lesbian and gay people. We're not shutting down that. 
in a small minority of the population, but yet they're across the airways and money, millions millions and millions of pounds are, tar- are actually sent to these people like Tell Mummy UK, Hope Not Hope Not Hate, who are just defending a very, very small minority in our country while the rest of us uh, are crying out for help. Like if you are a victim of grooming gang, as I said earlier, there is no funding for that. Well, I think it's uh, pretty clear that everybody in the government is performing appeasement strategies that... I mean, throughout history have proven very ineffective. I think everybody's fairly clear that the white Christians aren't going to riot. They're not going to cause a lot of problems. They're going to submit because of historical uh, respect and venerance for the rule of law. And also because they have careers that they wish to maintain and and social standing that they wish to maintain. So, uh, you know, the old saying that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, the most uh, aggressive or most dangerous or or group most likely to riot. And this is all over the world, uh, generally tends to get the most concessions and the most law abiding and and the silent majority and so on. Uh, Well, you, you don't really have to factor that into your calculations because you believe that they're not going to do much to protest. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, but that's slowly changing. Um, last Sunday in the UK, we had a day of freedom, a day of speech, and 5,000 people attended Whitehall, um, quite well-known people that had been kicked off Twitter or Facebook. Um, there was Tommy Robinson, there was Rehaim Ghassan from Breitbart, there was um, Shazia Hobbs, a former Muslim, and also this guy called Carl Count Drankula, who was um, fined for hate speech for 800 pounds a few months ago because he taught his Nazi, well, he, he, taught, he taught his little pug to do Nazi signals. And let's get that straight, why he did that. And I'm no apologist for him, but he said, everybody loves my girlfriend's dog and it's the most adorable pug going. But what if I made him do something really heinous, it was really horrible, would they actually hate him? So he taught him to do a, a, a Nazi salute. And it was a joke, you know, he, and he did this to show, uh, show lots of things, actually. But he was then fined £800. So he was a speaker at this event on Sunday. And there was over 5,000 people there. But how did the mainstream media ta- um, report it? Well, they didn't, actually. There was a sort of clip, oh, the far right are now marching in London. It was also called the far right extremist Nazis, etc. But what... I couldn't actually attend it because I was on the plane back from the US, but the feedback I get was people that had never attended a march before, that they were so concerned about what was going on in the country from grandmothers to young people, um, they were coming out in support. And then there's another group called the Football Lads Alliance. So they are people across the country that uh, support various football clubs. They're now massing together. There's veterans against um, violence and that means jihadi violence as well. So all these groups are suddenly joining up. And they, they, there was tens of thousands of them a few months ago when, when they marched, I can't remember if it was Birmingham or Manchester. And then there's another one planned. And so the mainstream media uh, either report it, or, and if they do report it, then it's far-right extremists, or it's the football lads, um, you know, they're far-right, or it's the BNP, the British National Party in disguise. Uh, this is a resurgence of Nazism and the far-right. You should be very worried about it. But when you actually drill it down and you go and talk to these people, they're ordinary people that bring their families along, their grandmothers who are not online, but come along and grandma and see, and they bring their kids along. So there's a growing movement. And don't forget... When I was elected in 2014, the biggest uh, grouping going to the parliament was UKIP, the Eurosceptic Party. So uh, we we dominated that. We're not the Conservatives of, of number one. And at the moment... There's a, there, there's, a, there's a sort of crisis in our politics. There's a two-party state. There's smaller parties that have emerged, but they'll never get elected because we've got a first-past-the-post system, um, just like the, the US. And I think to a degree you've got it in Canada as well. So it's a winner-takes-all. Um, so there's this sort of battleground at the moment where we've got to win. And if we don't win, we're lost. But I, I, I do have a hope for the future. When I looked at what happened at the Day of Freedom on Sunday, you know, we got Trump in the White House um, and the massive support that he's got across the country because he's stuck to the, the policies that he promised. And he's not having any truck with extremists and jihadis and foreign aid and what's happening with Iran with the nuclear deal. You know, he is going to build that wall. Um 
And that's brilliant. And you see this all across Europe. So I, I do have some hope, but all we have is sort of trees of the appeaser in Downing Street. <laughs> Nobody knows what she stands for. Um, and, and quite frankly, it needs a, a figure like a Trump, a Putin even, or a Margaret Thatcher, um, a Reagan type of person to come forward and say, this is what I believe in. Now, these are our British values, because at the moment, we don't know what British values are. When uh, Lauren Southern was ejected from the UK, I got us to come to the uh, we rescued her from Calais and we got her to come to the European Parliament and I said but why were you arrested well I was arrested under section 7 of the terrorist act um, I said well what does that mean well it means I can be detained I can be deported yes and we need a leader that's come out of Britain now, just like a Trump, and say, right, this is what we stand for. These are the British values. Because when Martin Selner was ejected a few weeks ago, they also said, you don't, you do, you don't comply with British values. But people are now asking, well, what are British values? It isn't ejecting um, nice European, nice American, nice Canadian people like that, who um, have got an enormous following. This defend Europa, the, the, the identitarian movement is enormous. So what we need in this country is somebody to say, yeah, these are our British values. These are our European values, which are not the same as EU values. And this is what we stand for, you know, whether it's low taxes, high taxes, but just be honest with the people and lay out your red lines, just like Trump did, and then get into power and start delivering it. Wow, you know, we've got somebody like Trump in America that's actually delivering on their promises. And that's what they hate. And that's why he's so hated, actually. It isn't about him. It's the rest of them scratching their head thinking, oh, my God, you know, we've now got to live up to this. So I am hopeful. I am hopeful that we can change things because I think we're at a tipping point. We're at a tipping point in the EU, a tipping point in Europe. Europe uh, you're at that tipping point because you've got that cretin Trudeau that's, that's running your country, which is, I think, being outside of your country, he's an embarrassment to you on the world stage. Um, hopefully you've got another Stephen Harper soon and, and, and that, that will work. But people must look at him in Canada and think, oh, wow, um, we've got to get rid of this guy. Because yeah, Hopper was a very open borders guy when it came to immigration. So uh, it may be the challenge. And, you know, with regards to Theresa May, I mean, boy, a more half vertical pile of spineless pudding when it comes to negotiations could scarcely be imagined. And this, of course, is the great frustration as people poured time, effort, energy, resources. They burned relationships. They, they threatened their own professional success by really working hard for Brexit, which had a lot to do with, of course, borders, control over immigration. And it is funny that people who want borders are called Nazis. If I remember my history correctly, Nazis not so very big on borders because they liked walking across them with a whole load of, load of panzers in, in a various countries. So yeah, wanting borders, kind of the opposite of being a Nazi. But uh, the, the hope was, of course, that they could regain control over the country through Brexit. And now Brexit is like a slow walk into a foggy nothingness. And I think uh, that uh, is a very risky thing because people say, okay, well, we really tried the political approach. And if the political approach genuinely doesn't work, What's next? What uh, what they're uncorking could be very very dangerous. I think. Yeah, I mean, seventy. The polls show now that uh, across Remainers and Leavers, they just want the government to get on with it. The government isn't prepared. Um, they say, oh, well, business isn't prepared. We need to stay in a customs union or a form of customs union. If we stay in any form of customs union, which is being um, touted this week, then we can't do free trade uh, drills across the world. You know, we've got the Commonwealth lining up. Even Trudeau wants a free trade deal. Trump definitely does. I was in uh, Washington at Christmas and I met Se uh, Secretary of State Wilbur Ross, who's Secretary of State for Commerce. And he said to, there was other European leaders in the room. Um, and I said to him, will you, will you re-explain what the special relationship means to my European colleagues here? And he said, I tell you what it means, you're our greatest ally. He said, these people in this room, they don't get free trade. They don't understand. You're a protectionist racket. And he said, Janice, if you want a free trade deal, you can't take the bitter pill that the EU is offering you. So, you know, when you've got President Trump lining up, got Australia, the Commonwealth countries, you're saying we want to have a free trade agreement with you. And then it's being blocked at the centre of our government. And people are getting really, really angry with that because they do actually recognise that, you know, we can trade. They don't maybe get the concept of free trade 
um, uh, agreements, but they do recognize that we can have cheaper imports from the US and Canada um, and, and, and beef, all products from, from around the world and India as well, you know, great trading partnership and China, but we can't because we're constrained. So we cannot stay in a customs union. They've also um, fleeced our fishermen as well. We used to have um, a great fishing fleet in this country, which has been decimated because of the common fisheries policy. Now, one of the things that we that, that, that swung the vote was the fishermen coming out from ports all around the UK and sailing up the Thames to Parliament saying we want our fishing rights back. And we've seen that um, industry decimated. It can't be handed on to the next generation. They can only they can only fish for quotas. But the Spanish can just walk in and take their quota, which are enormous because that's all been negotiated away. The French can't. So we need to take back control of our waters, and that's not on the table at the moment. And so the the, the government is walking um, a very 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 tight line here. The, the Treasury. Is purposely because he's a Remainer, that the um, uh, the, the Chancellor, he has not made any contingency plans or any budgets whatsoever to for a, for a no deal scenario. So we would just walk away. The negotiations um, won't work. There's a one in five chance of that happening at the moment. We walk away and we go to World Trade Organization rules. He's made no um, provisions for that whatsoever. You got the Department for Trade. Uh, Department of International Trade heads up with a great Liam Fox, actually, a true Brexiteer and a, and a, and a true friend of, of the US and Canada. Now, his department this week, their priority should be negotiating trade deals. But this week, they've decided that LGBT is their priority and that they're going to be the greatest trans and LGBT um, champion across Whitehall. No, nobody's interested. You know, Canada's not interested at the moment whether, you know, we're treating our gays, lesbians, transsexuals in, in the right way in a, in a Whitehall department. And this is a sort of the problem that we're coming up. And then you've got the House of Lords, this anarchic, unelected body that 12 times in the past few weeks have said, we can't Brexit like that, because the Lords has been stuffed full of people, of cronies from David Cameron and Nick Clegg and the Labour Party as well. So we don't have a majority in the Lords. Now, if Theresa May wants to grow a pair, she should create 100 new peers, put them in the House of Lords, and then we can deliver the Brexit that we all voted for. And she's going to have, um, if, if the we had some local elections uh, a couple of weeks ago, where the Conservatives did quite well, they're expected to be constituencies, they weren't. So you found the UKIP vote, the, the, the Lever vote, whether they were Labour or UKIP from Conservative, going back to the Conservative Party. And, and that was a strong message to her to say, deliver Brexit. And if she doesn't, then there's going to be, I think, civil unrest, there'll be a lot of upheaval. And I think the Conservative Party will be out of office again for a generation, um, as they were in 1997. Yeah, by which time demographics will virtually ensure that they will never get back in. So the last point I wanted to make, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because um, I know that you were on, an entrepreneur before you became a politician. You ran a marketing business for two decades, because, of course, you started when you were 12. Now, I have noticed this kind of pattern among people. I mean, if you look at yourself, you, you look at other politicians, particularly Trump, if you've actually been in the business world, if you've actually had to run a business, if you've actually had to hire people uh, in, in the remnants of the free market, if you've actually had to manage taxes and regulations on the receiving end rather than on the passing end, I myself was an entrepreneur in the software field for 15 years before I started doing this, there does seem to be kind of a divide among politicians. Have you ever had a real job? Have you ever been responsible for payroll? Have you ever struggled to build something from nothing? Or have you kind of floated from privilege to privilege, from school to community organizer to politics and so on? Uh, have you ever been, say, I don't know, a part-time drama teacher <laughs> as opposed to somebody who actually runs a business? Do you think that there is something in this hypothesis that if you really want to understand how the market works, it's really a good idea to have participated it in some meaningful way prior to getting into office? Oh, absolutely. I have lots of um, young people that come and work for me as interns. And over the years, oh, I want to go into politics, Janice. I said, yeah, go and get a real job first. <laughs> go and do something in the real world. You know, go into business, become a nurse, a doctor, anything. Go and work in the charity sector. I don't care. But just get experience of life. And when you're over 35, 
then decide to go into politics. Because what we're seeing, which in the whole Labour Party, and to a degree the Conservative Party, and certainly the Liberal Democratic Party, none of them have had a proper job. They've all gone from elite schools to elite universities to working in the European Commission, working for an MP, a Member of Parliament, and then they have been chosen to go in. And I was part of David Cameron's A-list. I hated that. Um, and I I was one of the. I wasn't one of the preferred women because um, I was a pain in the neck to him, and uh, I wasn't allowed to talk about Europe. I wasn't allowed to talk about immigration. I wasn't allowed to talk about schools, etc. I had, I had to stay on message. And um, when after the 2010 election, I fought an election in a 15% Muslim demographic demographic um, uh, constituency, I left um, and, and, and joined UKIP because at least there I found people of like mind. They had had proper jobs, they'd run businesses, or they'd been in professions. You know, they were doctors, dentists, nurses, teachers, etc. So if you haven't had experience of life, you can't tell other people how to run that. It's all very theoretical. And then, you know, last word on the EU, the woman that's in charge of trade policy is a woman called Cecilia Malmström. She's Swedish. She's unelected. Um, she spent her life as a sociology lecturer. That woman is now charge of, in charge of international trade. And so it goes on. There's another one who's in charge of international um, trade relations. And she, all she's ever done, um, I think she was, she'd gone from job to job to job just in um, politics. She'd never had a proper job anywhere else. She, I mean, I think she was in something in sociology as well. And when you start unpacking the backgrounds of all these people, you look at um, Macron is a good example. Although he worked in politics, again, he'd been chosen. He'd been to an elite school, an elite university, and he was plucked from obscurity to go and work in a bank to make those contacts um, and make those millions. And then all of a sudden he found himself in the socialist uh, party that was dealing with tax and um, regulation, etc. And then, oh, well, you can form your own party. And, you know, Millions of pounds were put behind that man to get into power just to stop Marine Le Pen. And so it goes on. You know, they are being chosen. It, it's, it's a sort of um, uh, it's a common purpose order that people are rejecting. And, and I've got an idea that we have we have this X factor for politicians you know, to sort of take it on um, screen. And there's a few people that are interested. So we could have the sort of the people's pledge, the people's party. You know, you can stand there and pitch, um, like they have the open primaries, basically, in the US. And so the people are actually choosing their candidates. And if we get enough people behind them, then we can fund them to stand. So we break the two-party deadlock system and put the resources behind those people that have been chosen in a constituency by the people. And on your CV, I would like to see you don't come into politics until you're 35 and you've had to have a proper real job in the real world and understand things, you know, have a family, then come into to politics and we'll support you. Well, well said. All right. So I just wanted to remind people, well, first of all, thank you very much for your time today. Great chat. Just wanted to remind people, please go to janiceatkinson.co.uk and you can follow her excellent Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash Janice4. That's the number four. Janice for Brexit. And I really, really appreciate your time. I, of course, appreciate the work that you're doing in politics. Uh, to, to sit down with a playlist of Janice Atkinson videos uh, is a fine evening's uh, enjoyable and stimulating <laughs> entertainment. So uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope we get to talk again soon. You're very kind. Thank you very much, Stefan.